One of the things that reading up on history that struck me that I'm always reminded of as a veteran is, you know, the people who got carted off protesting, you know, but I fought in the Kaiser's army. And that's my experience too, is that, wow, you're a vet. Thank you for your service. Oh, I'm also LGBT. Yeah, get out. Wow, that, that, was, that was a quick turnaround. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Bryn Tannehill, a fellow former Navy pilot and the author of American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. She is also a security analyst and blogger whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Salon.com, The New Republic, and elsewhere. Bryn, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it, Ken. Your recent article in the New Republic discussed what the world might look like should Trump return to the White House. And you go over some of the worst case scenarios, which might include us cutting off all aid to Ukraine, withdrawing from NATO. I'm wondering how realistic you think that is, because you and I both served at a time when there was a clear bipartisan consensus that NATO was good and we needed to hold the line against Russia. And the institutionalists in the Republican Party, the Mitch McConnells, Kevin McCarthy's, Lindsey Graham, they still claim to believe that, but the rank and file appears to have shifted dramatically. And I'm just wondering if Trump wins, do you think the establishment Republicans will be able to rein in his most dangerous impulses when it comes to national security? And the answer is, I don't know, because from what I'm hearing is Trump's biggest takeaway from his first term was that you need to put people in place who are going to back you to the hilt and will not say no. He disliked his military cadre, particularly Kelly and Mattis, because they kept telling him no when he threw out crazy ideas um, and proposed things were awful. Even Mark Esper, right, his last sec def, voted against him, right? He admitted later that Mark Esper... Mark Esper voted for Joe Biden because he was so terrified by what Trump was proposing. And Trump's lesson was, is I need better sycophants. <laughs> and people forget that every officer commissioned into the U.S. military serves at the pleasure of the president. The president can say, all you generals that I don't trust, gone. We're, we are we are removing all the flag officers and we're putting in flag officers in place who will do what they're told or who are completely on board with my agenda. And essentially, I think that there's a high probability that Trump will be able to, he's definitely going to try it. I like 99% sure he's going to try and pull out of NATO, that he's going to try and end support for Ukraine, whether or not the Republican institutionalists are able to stand up to him and his voters and the base is a really kind of an open question. But I would note that most of the rank and file Republicans eventually rolled over and basically went along with whatever he wanted, that the, that the, the never Trump contingent of the Republican Party melted quickly. And the last really effective institutionalist Republican who was willing to uh, oppose Trump died when John McCain passed away. 
Right. There's this weird bifurcation in the Republican Party when it comes to the sympathy for Putin and the suspicion of Zelensky. Trump and his acolytes, of course, have this affinity for authoritarianism. But you write a lot about the evangelical church, and and I've seen this strain within evangelicalism and the idea that Putin is somehow a defender of Christian values. How do those two ideas interplay the love for authoritarianism at the top of the Republican Party and this this weird idea that Putin is somehow a sword bearer for Christianity? So this is actually a two-part answer and you just didn't know it, right? So let's go back. And I wrote about this in American fascism a little bit. Some of it got cut because I didn't know quite where to go with it. So there was actually a cut chapter on this topic. And going back to the the early 90s, uh, American evangelical churches and churches that wanted to aggressively spread Christianity, including uh, the Mormon church, which I was uh, ex-Mormon, planned on, you know, trying to, look, Russia's opened up and now we can spread the good word, right? Somebody has reminded me that a church full of teetotalers probably was never going to get much of a toehold in Russia. And they were right. I think that was pure fantasy on their part. Was that Greg O'Lear? Did he make that point that you're... It might, it could have, could very well have been, but somebody who put it, I was like, yeah, that probably wasn't the best planning. Oh, key detail, right? You know, what is it uh, Thomas Huxley once wrote? You know, the the great tragedy in science and a beautiful hypothesis ruined by an ugly fact. (laughs) Right. So... Going back into 1997, the Mormon Church, the Catholic Church, evangelical churches formed the World Congress of Families, and they brought in the Russian Orthodox Church to act as kind of a national or a world conference to bring conservative Christian religions together to kind of plan their overarching goals and to work together as kind of a kind of a UN for conservative Christian denominations, right? And that's how they've coordinated uh, for the past 25 years is through the WCF. And it's notable that even after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014 and the export controls and the WCF continued to hold and host uh, Russian entities and they held one of their conferences in Moscow after in 2015, right? Um, so you've got that. And you also saw... Uh, in the early 2000s, a lot of American evangelicals and tradcaths like uh, Paul Werich looking at Russia and going, wow, we really like What's a tradcat? I, I know what it is. I grew, I, uh, I, I married a Catholic, but what's a tradcat? Uh, a traditional Catholic. Basically, Catholics who are very, very conservative, those who really, you know, never got over Vatican II. So you had this, so you had this American evangelical like of, ooh, look at what Putin's doing. At the same time, in the late 90s, Alexander Dugan, Russian ultranationalist, who, you know, has some influence over Putin, though I think it's probably over, been overstated in the West somewhat, developed his concept of how to reestablish the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, which was exporting Russian views of traditional Orthodox Christianity to frame themselves as the defender of the Christian faith against on-rushing Islam. 
after no more 9-11s happened, that shifted. And towards the late 2000s, that took on the shape of being opposed to mostly gay people, right? Uh, Gay marriage and gay adoption. The Russian world is opposing the gay incursion into Western life and that Western nations are inherently corrupt and anti-Christian because they accept these deviant lifestyles. And over time, this, this has continued to resonate very, very well with conservative American Christians who look at the don't say gay laws being passed in Russia in 2013 and have applied it broadly to conservative American states like Texas and Florida, where you can't so much as mention the word LGBT or gay or trans in a school there, even if you've got a kid with gay parents or a kid who's gay or trans or what have you, right? This, or you, there's no, you can't have so much as a library book that even acknowledges the existence of LGBT people. So this is definitely something where Russia has deliberately framed itself as a defender of Christianity. And the American Christian movement has coordinated with this and they have bought into it wholeheartedly which when you look at who supports Trump, it is white evangelical Christians and traditional Catholics and Mormons. That's his base, white conservative Christians who are have been working with Russia through organizations and have been deliberately recruited into looking at them as kind of an exemplar of how to defend Christian values for 25 years now. It wasn't always this way, though. One of the things that strikes me about your writing and commentating on this is the recognition that the evangelical church a generation ago, or maybe a generation and a half ago, was devoutly, if you will, non-political. They felt that there was, you know, the heavenly realm where they operated and the earthly realm of politics, which they'd rather stay out of. And they made an explicit, I think you mentioned uh, Weyrich, they made an explicit decision to go all in on a handful of cultural issues in the pursuit of power. And it has been one of the most successful political gambits in American history. Can you talk about that shift when the evangelical movement in this country decided, you know what, politics is in our wheelhouse and we're going to go for it? So as late as the late 60s, people like Jerry Falwell, who eventually, you know, formed the the cornerstone of the moral majority that helped Reagan get elected, were apolitical. They wanted to stay out of politics. And early 70s, right, you have the fights over desegregating schools. You have the fight over whether or not religious schools that, that, that are segregated should retain their tax-exempt status. That was the number one fight for white Southern evangelicals, was whether or not private schools that discriminate should keep their tax-exempt status, right? Wayrich wanted to make it about abortion, and they really weren't having it. They were like, no, this is this. we, we want our schools segregated, and we want to keep our money. And Wayrich is like, okay, fine, we'll go with this for now. But eventually, he did bring them around to making abortion the number one issue, right, for these churches. But initially, it was support for segregation, right? Segregated colleges, segregated high schools that were religious in nature and run by whites, evangelical churches. And one of the things the book notes is that when Ronald Reagan was deliberately courting Falwell and the moral majority and others uh, and gave speeches 
to their organizations. Abortion really wasn't really on the radar back in 1980. He was talking about how he would use his attorney general to defend schools' rights to discriminate and retain their tax-exempt status. They ended up losing this at the Supreme Court, I think, 8-1 or 9-0. But really, it wasn't until the mid to late 80s that it really shifted to being, okay, well, we've lost the fight for segregation. Now we're going to make it about abortion. And eventually they did win. And the white evangelicals uh, have been, who are primarily in the South, but have strong toeholds in places like Ohio, uh, or strong presences in Ohio, eventually, you know, did end up ending row. Uh, they have remained the most solid Republican voting bloc ever since. And in a bigger picture, it's part of the shift of the American South from being Democratic to being a Republican stronghold that started as far back as Strom Thurmond in 48, running against Truman as part of the uh, Dixiecrats, but really accelerated after Lyndon Johnson signed off on the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act uh, and Nixon. Nixon's Southern strategy of we're going to try and recruit disaffected Southern whites through dog whistling racial issues and security and peace. And this recruitment of people like Falwell and the Moral Majority and other white Southern evangelical leaders was part of that deliberate shift. Keep in mind, too, that Weyrich founded the Heritage Foundation in 72. So this this was well-coordinated. There was definitely a long-term plan in mind, and it's largely been successful. And that shift of evangelicals into the Republican camp has been almost total. We, we've spoken to pastors like Angela Danker and researchers like Kristen Dumay who say that that, that co-option is pretty complete, but it is a movement really defined by by grievance and an oppositional mindset. And there's this passage in particular from uh, American fascism that I want your reaction to. You wrote that the Christian right has made the Republican Party their home. They believe that electing Republicans is part of a religious holy war against the forces of darkness. Feminists, Black Lives Matter, immigrants, LGBTQ people, Planned Parenthood, cultural Marxists, etc., in order to achieve their goals, They have to vote Republican in large numbers. They would never support any sort of action that diminishes the value of their vote. They had made a host of things religious, from guns to the top marginal tax rate. They occupy the top tier of American social strata and will never endanger it. Evangelicals, at least as co-opted by the Republican Party, are really defined by what they're against. And that's true. This has turned into a party of just pure culture war. And that makes sense. People that I also write about, and I keep coming back to it, the concept of social dominance orientation, an intrinsic and maybe not even conscious belief that we are the right sort of people, that that we have a right to be, a God-given right to be the chosen people. We are the best kind of people. We are the real Americans because we are Christian, uh, because we're not one of those Black people living in inner cities and doing Black people things, right? 
even if they don't think that to themselves or think that consciously, it's there kind of in the background, right? And Trump appealed to it a lot through talking about American carnage and referring to inner cities and treating, uh, you know, Baltimore in particular with contempt because it is a city with a lot of people of color in a democratic state that was near Washington, D.C. And the social dominance orientation, when it is challenged, this when they see LGBT people being treated as real Americans, as being treated as equal to everyone else or Black people or feminists or what have you, but in particular, lately, LGBT people, it enrages them because they feel these people are wrong. These We should not be treating these people as equal. There is something wrong with them. This country shouldn't be tolerating these people and they're being treated equal to me, one of the good people. I'm one of the good ones. I worship God the right way. I've lived my life according to my particular values and they don't. And they should be punished, not rewarded, not celebrated. And this is taking away from my my rightful status as one of the good real Americans, right? We are conceptually, and I use the term fascism very deliberately because this is the same mindset that, you know, and captured the uh, supporters of the NSDAP and the Herrenvolk, you know, leading up to 1933. It's the very much the Herrenvolk concept, the very much the Herrenvolk concept that they are the real Germans. They're the right kind of Germans, right? You know, and, and you even had the rural-urban splits, whereas, you know, the NSDAP, aka the Nazis, had their strongholds in rural Germany, whereas, and so do uh, the cultural populist conservatives who support the Republican Party today. It's essentially a piece of the same phenomenon, culturally and politically. That's an interesting comparison because I see many parallels, but I also see one striking difference, which is that in America today, the Republican Party is confronted with the reality of a demographic tidal wave that is going to overwhelm them unless they're able to rig the system so that votes are either undercounted or it's it's too hard to vote. Can you talk about how minoritarian rule is their game plan? Oh, absolutely. The term that's used by Levitsky and Way in a book called Competitive Authoritarianism, which is on the shelf behind me, is that this is competitive authoritarianism. The, the goal is to win an election and then rig the game such that the incumbent party can never really effectively lose again, that it's almost impossible. And you could do this through gerrymandering. You could do this through packing the courts. You could do this by, you know, making other parties illegal. You could do this through voter suppression. You could do this through, you know, like with voter ID rules. Or in Hungary, the way they did it is that only certain people who are very, very likely to vote for Orban, who have moved ethnic Hungarians who are national, who are citizens of surrounding countries of Hungary, can vote in Hungarian elections, right? But students who are Hungarian and move out of the country or work out of the country because they're part of the European Union aren't allowed to vote because those are the people most likely to vote against Orban, right? And the, uh, the, the goal is basically to make elections a popular anesthetic that 
you know, the opposition always convinces itself that, oh, we could win this next time. It's Charlie Brown, elections are Charlie Brown with a football, right? And that by holding elections that are essentially free, but entirely unfair, you prevent a popular revolt. And we saw that with Erdogan in Turkey. There's some election irregularities, but they went to great lengths to make sure that the most popular political opposition figure uh, was charged with crimes right before the election. So he couldn't run. So they dug up some guy who wasn't nearly as electable, Kilkardouche. I can't pronounce his name. I'm sorry. But the, the opposition figure that was the running, less charismatic, old, less popular, engaged, unlikely to be able to unsert, uh, unseat Erdogan, right? And you also see uh, ballot disqualifications generally favoring him, courts that make decisions in favor of the incumbent party. Uh, and we can see that to some extent in the U.S. where we, where you, states are targeting students. They're, tar- they're making sure that Native Americans who uh, have post office boxes for mailing addresses can't vote or they have to travel 100 miles to get to a polling station, can't do mail-in ballots, students can't use student IDs, you know, just a host of rules designed to make sure that the kinds of people they don't want voting don't vote. That, you know, you can see in, in places like Georgia where the average wait time to vote for white people is 10 minutes and it's 50 minutes for black people, right? And all of this is designed to create a system where the incumbent party can't lose. And over time, changes the rules and changes the rules and changes the rules such that it always looks theoretically possible, but never actually is to change who's in power. And that's kind of the end state goal is Hungary. And I would point out that CPAC hosted its conference in Hungary and that their keynote speaker was Viktor Orban here in the U.S. So it's it's not as if the collusion isn't out in the open. Right, right. I want you to talk a, a little bit more about the Fidesz party in Hungary and what their overall share of the vote is, because it, it's not just about voter intimidation and subversion, making it difficult to to express yourself at the polls. It's about co-opting media levers, having friendly oligarchs in charge of, of the media apparatus. I mean, there are, are many ways in which that is unfolding in Hungary that we should be paying close attention to because we're seeing early signs of that or maybe middle stage signs of that in, in our country. Yeah. So what we're seeing in Hungary, 90% plus of the media is controlled either by the government, which is pro-Orban, or controlled by oligarchs who are pro-Orban because he deliberately made sure that people who are friendly to him ended up owning these media companies, right? They've shut down a lot of uh, media organizations that were anti-Orban, and essentially the media is no longer fair. And when he came to, when he spoke to CPAC, his number one recommendation to the crowd was get your own media, create your own media, control the media. I think get your own media was the closest translation. And they're getting that, right? With Sinclair buying up all the local you know, news stations and FC, ending FCC rules about competitiveness in markets, you know, you're, you're seeing information deserts where, where if you watch the 10 o'clock news, you're going to get the same news every, every spot. 
And the news being fed to people is being fed by a company that has must-run political commentary that is universally conservative, right? We can see that with CNN deciding that they want in on some of that sweet, sweet Fox lucre, right? That the path to money is Fox. Fox is tremendously profitable. Their commentary and news is tilted further and further right. Look at how they gave Trump a town hall that was by any standard measure, a disaster for free media. It was essentially a one-hour televised Trump rally and that the moderator served roughly the same purpose as a referee in a WWE match, right? Um, And going beyond that, you've got Fox and Newsmax, right, who are particularly conservative outlets that are dominant. And at the newspaper level, local newspapers are going out of business left, right, and center and leaving only a few national newspapers, which don't seem to hesitate to lean right on issues where they think, ooh, look, this gets the, the right-wing base agitated. Look how many eyeballs it draws. Look, you know, this is, this is about money-making, right, in the end. And that's why you see the New York Times running anti-trans piece after anti-trans piece and agreeing with uh, Republican politicians and disagreeing with scientists and trans people and ignoring the uh, or platforming people who represent tiny minorities within the medical or trans community and mainstreaming. While at the same time you have Republicans calling for the eradication of transgenderism from public life and you've got literal swastika tattooed Nazis waving big red German flags with swastikas on them, zigailing, showing up at anti-trans rallies, right? And when you get down to it, the policies that are being endorsed by the New York Times editorial board pretty well line up with the Republicans, which also pretty well lines up with the guys, you know, flip, you know, flashing zig aisles and carrying assault rifles at anti-trans rallies. This is not a good place to be politically or in terms of the media when you have the media siding with the people calling for the extermination of a minority that constitutes about 0.6% of the population. Bad in 33, bad in 2023, if you know what I'm saying. We've all heard the famous line, try it free for 30 days. Yeah, well, that's just enough time to try it and then completely forget about it. In fact, over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. You could be wasting money and not even realizing it. Rocket Money helps you find those forgotten subscriptions so you can stop paying for ones you don't use. Do you know how much your subscriptions really cost? Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions, but the actual total is closer to 200 If you don't know exactly how much you're spending every month, you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, and chances are you're one of them. Like that Stars app just to watch one show, or that free gaming trial you never actually used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find your subscriptions for you. 
And for any you don't want to pay for anymore, just hit cancel and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. Rocket Money also helps you manage all your finances in one place and automatically categorizes your expenses so you can easily track your budget in real time and also get alerted if anything looks off. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash boats. That's rocketmoney.com slash boats. Rocketmoney.com slash boats. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and they feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash boats to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo boats at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash boats and use the code to claim your free three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted boosted energy, immune system support, and a supplement that actually tastes great. I take AG1 before starting my day, and it makes me feel ready to take on anything. I'm doing something good for my body, giving it the nutrition it craves. I've tried a ton of different supplements out there but this is different. The ingredients are super high quality. I noticed right away that it improved my energy levels and made me feel great. AG1 makes it easier to take the highest quality supplements, period. Just one daily serving covers my day's nutritional bases and supports long-term gut health with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. It's one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day. AG1 is that easy. If I could recommend one additional thing to do to take care of my health, it's this, AG1 by Athletic Greens. I can't think of another daily routine that pays off as well as AG1, which is why I trust it so much. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash burntheboats That's athleticgreens.com slash burn the boats. You won't regret it. You wrote this just yesterday on Twitter. You said, my existence 
as an out trans person is considered leftist. And you're responding to a DeSantis speech in which he talked about destroying leftism. No matter what I do to DeSantis, I cannot be one of the good ones. I am anathema. In reality, I'm just a boring vet and defense analyst with a family living on the Beltway. But DeSantis wants to destroy us. That's pretty stark. And given his rhetoric, well, I think one of your cardinal rules is listen to the authoritarians. Believe them. And it's not my cardinal rule. It was invented. It was come up with by Masha Gessen, right? In her Rules for Surviving Autocracy, published in the aftermath of the 2016 election. And uh, the first three rules were believe the authoritarian, don't accept small signs of normalcy, and your institutions will not save you. And the first and third, all three are important, but the first and third really stuck with me. And when they talk about eradicating transgenderism, don't sugarcoat it. This is, don't accept the spin. This is something that they mean in a fairly literal sense, that they don't want there to be any out trans people in the United States. They want to make life so unpleasant and hostile that they, trans people either go back in the closet or they detransition and go back in the closet or they never come out of the closet or they leave, right? And that was the goal of Germany from 33 to 39, right? And I point out to people that, you know, after Kristallnacht, even even as far along into the run-up to the Holocaust as that, they arrested 30,000 Jewish men and they held them for anywhere between a couple of weeks to three months. But almost all of them, almost all, were eventually released. But the condition for their release was signing a contract with the German government that they would leave Germany and emigrate out, liquidate their assets of which Germany would get most and they would go away, right? And when they talk about eradicating transgenderism, it's essentially if you are incapable of detransitioning or disappearing, that you will go away. And that's kind of the end state goal. Yeah, I want to make that explicit by looking at specific efforts underway. When we think of uh, the these so-called bathroom bills, they're framed as a way to protect children or protect society. But as you put it in a recent interview, the ones, the bathroom bills like those proposed in Texas, Florida, and Kentucky are designed to legally drive transgender people out of the state or back into the closet. It is exactly yes. what you're describing. And it just goes beyond that. It, it goes to a lot of aspects of life, right? Which in Florida, it's now basically impossible for anyone, youth or adult, to get HRT, right? To hormone replacement therapy. And for a lot of us, we need those, right? That our endocrine systems rely on them, that we don't have our own endogenous endocrine system anymore. Uh, the same way a woman who has had a hysterectomy relies on uh, hormone replacement therapy to maintain bone health and uh, immune immune health and, and other things, right? Essentially, uh, endocrinologically, I'm no different than a woman who has had a hysterectomy uh, and needs HRT. It's not banned for her, but it's banned for me, right? And I would suffer a lot of the same health issues as a 48-year-old woman who's had a hysterectomy as a, a cisgender woman. But literally, I'm banned from getting that in Florida. So for my own health, 
I would have to go somewhere where I could get that or I'd have to obtain the prescription or the drugs illegally through a gray market. Then you have the drag bans that are so broad and overly vague that just about anything could be considered a performance and pornographic. If literally a family sing-along as I drive through Texas, right, in the car. Well, technically, if I'm singing and two of my kids are singing with me, uh, I just committed a felony, right? If I go to a park and play chess with somebody, right, the old guy in the park and two people watch, that's technically a pornographic performance because it's, I'm doing something in public and it's a, for entertainment and people are watching and I'm trans, therefore it's pornographic. Literally, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra would become illegal if the third clarinet is trans, right? And this is, this is the thing. And then the bans on, on books with trans people in them. And I want to point out that in Germany, one of the things that they did in 34 was that they passed laws saying that Jewish people couldn't do plays. They couldn't be in movies. They couldn't uh, do performances, right? They wanted to remove them from the public sphere that way. You know, the, the parallels are nasty enough and no one really wants to hear me out, but we are in the early stages of something very, very dangerous that if this continues along this trajectory, we end up at a place we swore we'd never be again. And that's, that's what has me concerned that the attempts are getting more blatant. The parallels are getting clearer. And the intent is being stated very, very clearly at this point by some people. And it's being stated more clearly by DeSantis when he says he wants to destroy the woke, destroy leftists, destroy leftism. My mere existence is considered leftist, even though I'm kind of center left. I write for the bulwark. I work with, with never Trump Republicans, uh, particularly on defense issues. But again, you know, one of the things that reading up on history that struck me that I'm always reminded of as a, as a veteran is, you know, the people who got carted off protesting, you know, but I fought in the Kaiser's army. It's, and that's my experience too, is that, wow, you're a vet. Thank you for your service. Oh, I'm also LGBT. Yeah, get out. Wow, that, that, was, that was a quick turnaround. One of the most sinister aspects of these attacks on traditional liberal values, meaning, you know, love of freedom, uh, the attacks on uh, uh, books that make some people feel uncomfortable, is the way citizens with an axe to grind have been deputized. You've literally placed bounties on the heads of, of women seeking health care in places like Texas, and so much of the the assaults are coming from the the grassroots now, and all it takes is you know an angry mom from what's the group Moms for Liberty Moms for Liberty to ban Amanda Gorman's poetry in on an elementary school bookshelf or a book that mentions a, a trans person. That to me, I don't know that anyone has has written about just the the democratization of persecution and how effectively that's being deployed in places like Florida. And the Supreme Court really, an article that I'm supposed to write and haven't gotten around to is 
how the Supreme Court has made this worse, that they have abrogated their responsibilities, that they have facilitated this with their decisions, while at the same time undermining their own authority or their own perceived authority and legitimacy. And that's really dangerous. But when the Supreme Court punted on ruling on SB 8, the abortion bounty bill in Texas, that opened the floodgates. And now politicians are free to deputize it. And that's the thing is DeSantis uses, weasels his way out of it, is uses deceptive languages. I didn't ban books. I never banned books, right? But, you know, and takes this kind of, who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes attitude towards anyone accuses of that. Well, no, he passed laws that, that deputized anyone with, as you put it, an ax to grind and a religious belief that runs or racial beliefs uh, to challenge the legitimacy of a book in a library, whether it's a third grade reader about Hank Aaron or Rosa Parks or Ruby Bridges or Amanda Gorman's poetry or Tango Makes Three or I Am Jazz. Uh, I saw a statistic yesterday that something close to 80% of all books that are getting banned right now are being banned either because they feature Black people and civil rights history or they feature LGBT people. And that's really where they want to go, is that there's this narrative in conservative society that, yeah, there were some problems in the past, but all that's behind us now, and we can never speak of it again because everything is just perfect, and any problems that we have now are entirely the fault of liberals and Black people who just want to keep rehashing old history, and we're definitely not racist and we are definitely colorblind, and that things that happened in the past have absolutely no impact on what's happening now. There is no connection between slavery and Jim Crow and inequalities that we see today. Not zero. We passed the Civil Rights Act, passed the Voting Rights Act, and everything was perfect. Yeah. In the time we have left, I want to I want to visit your first book, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Trans, but we're afraid to ask because there are some myths in there that are just so, so memorable. Let me go to 18 and then I'll work backwards. Uh, this one, would, do, do you know which one off the top of your head I'm talking about? It, it, it's no, fine if you don't. But... I'm going to read it to you. This is a great one. Myth 18 in Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Trans, but we're afraid to ask is, uh, have you ever tried enjoying guy stuff? And your answer is, besides boxing, wrestling, judo, four years at a military academy, 10 years on active duty, three deployments to combat zones, getting a master's degree in applied mathematics, getting married, designing systems to train fighter pilots, playing fantasy basketball, and a flying attack and flying attack helicopters? No. <laughs> um, I, I love your sense of humor in demolishing some of these myths. I don't know if there's a question there, but if you want to riff on it, go ahead. Well, they technically weren't attack helicopters. I never actually shot at anything. We could carry stuff, but, you know, people uh, on the left, when people, oh, you warmongers, like, I was the worst warmonger ever because I never shot at anyone, but I saved a couple of people, fished them out of the water, did medevacs. So I had kind of a negative kill count. That's really, really not very good if you're, if you're, goal is to like rack up something. Yeah, it's that book is there's some things I would go back and revisit now. Uh those the book was kind of a collection of essays on on things that I wrote about between 2014-ish, 2013 and 2017. 
can I pitch my next, my other book that just came out? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's what I was reaching for. Uh, is uh, my child told me they're trans. What do I do? A Q&A guide for parents. I got together a bunch of parents of trans youth from all walks of life. And I also did research into what the most commonly asked questions are on parents' forums. I also got together some experts in child development are, uh, so that includes pediatricians, psychologists, therapists, school counselors, endocrinologists. And the book is laid out in this kind of a question and answer format where you have question that's commonly asked. Then you have kind of the textbook answer by somebody who's a subject matter expert in the field who actually works with trans youth. And then you have like three or four answers by parents of trans youth of how not only they handled it, but how they wish they'd handled it and how they think they should, they would handle it. And it covers a lot of ground. And given that literally people who are promoting conversion therapy and are affiliated with Christian hate groups that talk about eradicating LGBT people um, are publishing do-it-yourself manuals on how to perform conversion therapy on trans kids and are convincing people this is, this is what you should do. I wanted to get information out there from parents who have have kids, trans kids, actual trans kids, uh, from actual experts who work with trans kids. And the thing I want to emphasize about this book is that all the parents in this book still have wonderful relationships with their kids. Some of their kids are, you know, still in their teens. Some of them are adults now, but they all have great relationships with their kids and all of them are willing to go on record, not anonymously. They're going with their own names and their kids are willing to go on record as adults or and the people that are promoting conversion therapy, it's universally adults. It's people who either don't have trans kids, and if they did have a trans kid, their kid no longer wants to speak with them, or they're doing it anonymously so that you can't get their kid's side of the story, right? And when you do track, do figure out who they are and track down their kid, their kids universally never want to speak with their parents again, see them again, or tell them how their parents were abusive, they were involved with neo-Nazi groups, um, lied to them, gaslighted them, hurt them, or the, the, and the only time I've ever seen these kids whose parents are ridiculously anti-trans and broadcasting it that still have anything to do with their parents, what they tell me when I find them and talk to them is, is like, I tolerate them so they'll keep paying tuition. And oh, by the way, I'm getting medical care they don't know about, right? Yep. So that's, I really, I really wanted to get that out there. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It's from the same publishers that put out everything you ever wanted to know about trans. Um, and we as a group, because I only, I was the editor and organizer, but this, this is really meant to help parents. It's meant to help kids. And it's done from a perspective of people who have actually been there, done that. I love it. We'll make sure to include a link to it in the show notes. Thank you. Absolutely. On top of all of the things you described about those proponents of conversion therapy, they're also not even read up on, on scripture. And you have this, this point you make in everything you wanted to know about trans that the Bible makes reference to eunuchs 21 times and includes a reference to those who have made themselves eunuchs. The Hijra of India have a special place in Hinduism as a third gender. Uh, they're mentioned in the Kama Sutra, meaning they have been part of Indian culture since at least 200 BC. Those who invoke scripture or religious tradition as a justification for their prejudice, 
don't even know what they're referencing. I, I mean, the the hypocrisy of the the anti-trans and pro-conversion therapy community is just so thick you could cut it with a knife. And you know, the you go to Leviticus, right? And you have you, your Old Testament clobber verses, you know, to to condemn homosexuality or to condemn, you know, the, you know, uh, shall not wear what pertaineth to a, a woman, right? or pertaineth to a man, you know, some biblical scholars say that this wasn't talking about garments in general. It was talking about religious garments. Okay. But then again, supposedly the New Testament overrides the Old Testament, uh, if you're Christian. The other point is, well, God God made man and woman, right? There's, there's verses about that. But we can see that, see that there are intersex people definitively exist, that, that categorize them as male or female is a little bit more difficult, right? Where you have people with XY chimerism having children, right? Well, yeah, most of their DNA is XY, but they can have kids as, 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 and appear female, right? So biblical literalism doesn't really work here, but going beyond that, there's the verses about, uh, what is it? In God, there is no male or female, right? You know, there's the Bible really doesn't say a heck of a lot about trans people and what is there either can't be taken literally or is coming from a clobber verse from the Old Testament, which also says that if you, you know, you should be beaten to death if you're wearing fabrics, mixed uh, mixed fabrics, right? So, uh, or get a tattoo, right? It's kind of picking and choosing. But ultimately, um, a lot of this anti-trans legislation is, is based off of religious beliefs. And I think that that's going to be something that comes up in court quite a bit. Yeah. Last question. What is uh, the one or, or maybe two or three things that allies most often get wrong uh, in, in their efforts to support the trans community? I think one of the things that I see that that's where there's, where there's squishiness. Uh, one thing that bothers me is People who say they're allies and then they do something and a trans person gets mad at them and like, well, I'm not, I will never support you again. I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm voting, I'm voting Republican from now on. It's like, well, yeah, one trans person got mad at you for doing something or you did something problematic. And instead of listening, you, you went to the other side. The other one is when it comes to healthcare for trans youth, uh, saying, well, you can wait till you're 18. You should probably listen to the people who actually understand the literature uh, and understand that trans people, the detransition and regret is extremely rare, that making people wait till they're 18 and go through the wrong puberty has lifelong effects that result to poor mental health outcomes, right? And we have multiple studies showing this. We have multiple studies now uh, that are longitudinal showing that uh, youth who are supported have mental health outcomes that are way better than uh, the rest of the trans community and that are statistically the same, right? There's no statistical difference in mental health outcomes between supported trans youth and the general population in some of these studies that have been receiving medical care. And that applying these blanket bans harms way, way, way more people than it than it helps and results in lifelong harm. And that that giving credence to both sides and giving equal weight to both sides ignores the fact that one side wants to see trans people eradicated and relies on fake medical organizations with religious zealots 
who are also against gay marriage and gay adoption and want to make homosexuality illegal again. And you have trans people who just want to lead their lives and get the medical care that's going to lead to the best mental health outcomes for them. They're not the same. I, yeah, no, I agree. We're not both sizing this one for sure. Oh, and also the hypocrisy of the party of, of small government and, you know, prohibiting government interference in, in families dictating uh, how medical care is going to be provided to your family member. That's just insane and the height of hypocrisy. Bryn, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ken. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Bryn for joining me. Make sure to check out her books. They're all linked in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hastie, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.